You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. My guest on this episode of Talking Taiwan is the film director Arvind Chen. He just directed Love in Taipei, the film adaptation of Abigail Hingwin's best-selling YA novel, Love Boat Taipei. This isn't summer school. Why'd they give us so many books? You won't need them. Okay, I think I know why they call it Love Boat. If you're a longtime listener of Talking Taiwan, you may remember when I interviewed Abigail about her best-selling YA novel. That success was preceded by 12 years of writing and over 20 drafts of the novel. It was also in that episode that she announced that Love Boat Taipei was going to be made into a film. I remember watching her journey afterward on social media as the film was being shot in Taiwan during COVID. Arvind directed the film version of the book Love in Taipei, and I had a chance to speak to him recently about the film. Some of you may be familiar with some of Arvind's other films, Au Revoir, Taipei, Will You Love Me Tomorrow, and Mama Boy. I'm so pleased to have Arvind on the podcast to talk about the film adaptation of the book Love in Taipei, among other things. Thanks for having me. I feel like the line that we see in the trailer that the main character ever says, this is a love letter to a place that I never knew, really kind of captures the essence of what the film is about. It's a sort of love letter to Taipei, since there were so many iconic scenes in the film. You know, it showed the old and the new of Taipei. I saw the Silin Night Market, the Grand Hotel, the Taipei 101, and of course, Duodingdian. Um, the historic district. Did I miss any spots? Um, you know, I think there's a lot of just regular Taipei alleys, which is like also very Taipei. I mean, in different parts of the city, we did shoot a lot of alleyways, um, sky bridges over the city. I think for the, the big historical or the more famous cultural places, yeah, we like, we did shoot 101, um, an elephant mountain, which overlooks 101 and, uh, Grand Hotel for sure. And, um, we didn't shoot in the city night market, but I think there's some shots of city night market in there. Um, but we had to create our own night market for that because of COVID and, you know, just for production purposes, we created a night market. But, um, yeah, I think some of the more like, iconic places definitely we have in the movie. And then also some probably more like local places, you could say, like, you know, like little alleyways and more intimate little spaces too, as well. And I don't want to get into too many spoilers, but without giving anything away, what were some of your favorite scenes or locales in the film? You know, I loved the Grand Hotel. I loved shooting there. I, I never shot there before. It's a pretty hard location to get into. It meant a lot to me because I also got married there. Oh. And also, it, it's in Grand Hotel is one of my, in one of my favorite movies, EE. Right. So I think it was really, really nice just to be able to shoot there just because it's, again, like not that, not super accessible. And we were be able to create like a whole party scene in there. But I think my favorite location was this one Skybridge where there's like a little dance sequence. So I think like that, just be able to shoot like a dance sequence on the Skybridge that overlooks the city. I thought that was one of my favorite things that we did location wise. Yeah. And was that particularly challenging? It was a little challenging just production wise. The land bridge is public, so we could permit it, which wasn't an issue to get permission to shoot there, but to get all the equipment there. And we wanted to do like a, a very wide crane shot, like a moving crane shot. So just having to put the crane, like getting permission to put the crane like in the middle of the road and all the safety regulations that come with that, that was a little bit tricky. 
So what was it like for you going back to the Grand Hotel? Because you mentioned that you got married there. That must have been really kind of surreal filming there. Yeah, it, w- it was surreal just because like there were like 200 extras in this one scene or I don't know, maybe even 300. There's a lot of extras. And it really did feel like we were recreating like this party. You know, I, my wedding also had like, you know, a couple hundred people. Yeah. So it felt like we were like, recreating, not my wedding, but creating like a, this event. It really did feel like we weren't shooting a scene. It really did feel like there was like a real party, or, like a real event going on there. We were just kind of like, shooting this event. So it was really cool. Um, you know, it's a, I think it's pretty hard to get access to that hotel. And I don't know how we got it, especially the main lobby, but somehow we did it again, like at the height of COVID with like all these extras, we were somehow able to shoot there. As far as I know. Well, maybe it actually worked in your favor being COVID so that you could have access to it. It's possible. You know, that's one thing we were thinking too, is maybe like the business in the hotel had dropped enough during COVID because it is like a hotel that caters more to tourists than locals. So it's entirely possible because of COVID, there weren't people entering Taiwan and it was shut down. So maybe that's one of the reasons we could shoot there. That, That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. Is it really challenging to shoot big scenes like that with like hundreds of people? It's challenging. You really need to rely a lot on your ADs. I'm not directing all 200, 300, 300 people. You have assistant directors that break it down and they really help you figure out like, you know, who's doing what. So it's less challenging as a director. It's really challenging on the assistant director team because they have to be so honored about who's doing what, who's in charge of how many people, placing people and stuff like that. Me and the the DP, we do the final looks of like where, how, how people are placed, but if you have really good ADs, they can save you so much time and effort knowing where people should stand and like having a good idea of what looks natural. But it's not as hard as people think to have huge crowd scenes. It just takes longer to shoot because there's more moving parts. What are your favorite types of scenes to shoot? I love shooting dance scenes. I love shooting comedy if there's like, like comedic beats. I don't like shooting crowd scenes just because it's, it becomes so technical. It's so much more about like blocking and stuff like that. Sometimes I just like to see, shoot a scene with two people talking. You don't have to worry about so much except for their performance. So I think those are my favorite things to kind of shoot. And um, you mentioned that the film was filmed during COVID. What was that like? Was that challenging? And how did that affect filming? It was challenging in the sense that we couldn't shoot a lot of crowds unless we created the crowds ourselves. And we couldn't be shooting streets, again, because everyone was masked. So if we wanted to make it feel like this wasn't a movie that takes place into COVID, which it couldn't, right? Because of the tone of the movie, it would be super weird if it was like a movie set during COVID. Um, what we had to do was, you know, just create a lot of the crowds ourselves, but that just meant having to test every extra and have everyone masked up until right when we shot. It was tricky to create the vibe of a city that was like totally alive when, you know, we were at the height of the pandemic and the city was not nearly as lively as it usually is. I think the film really captured the whole feeling of being in Taiwan for the first time. And I think I read somewhere for a lot of the actors, it was also their first time. Can you talk a little bit about that? How that casting came about? The only actor that we had cast earlier on before I was even on board was Ross, Ross Butler, who is also an executive producer on the film. So he came on board much earlier, but uh, the rest of the cast, we really tried to do as open auditions as we could do, trying to not limit our search to, especially since they're so young, the pool of actors professionally was a little bit more smaller. So it did take us a lot of time, you know, to look through all these actresses, especially forever. Again, it was an open call. So it was like looking at professionals, non-professionals, actresses and non-actresses. So it took quite a while before we found someone like Ever or Ashley, who really did have like that quality that we wanted, which is kind of, you could buy that she was like, you know, grew up in this Midwestern town, kind of naive and hadn't seen a lot and, you know, a little bit more insecure. But at the same time, she could shift into someone who had a little bit more confidence in herself towards the end. So just finding that right balance was was tricky. What was really nice, though, is um it wasn't ever an issue, you know, to not cast Asians. 
you know, some movies, there's this role be Asian, so this role not be Asian, but like every role in the movie is ostensibly either Asian or Asian American or Asian, you're Asian. So it was just nice that every actor we saw was, we knew would be some kind of Asian actor playing the part. Right, definitely. And it's pretty impressive. Ross Butler and Chelsea, they speak Chinese. Were they able to speak Chinese before? Chelsea speaks Chinese pretty well. I think her parents are from mainland China, so she has more of like a mainland Chinese accent. And Ross speaks some, and I, I know he tried to learn more lines for it, uh, more Chinese, you know, for the part. But I don't think Ross grew up speaking as much Mandarin as Chelsea did. And Ashley speaks a little bit. Well, I know that usually you write and direct your films, and that wasn't the case with Love Taipei, since it's based on the best-selling novel Love of Taipei by Abigail Hingwen. And this film was adapted. There's a screaming adaptation for the novel. So how was your approach to this film different than your other films? Yeah, I mean, again, like you say, I usually write or co-write my own movies. And this one... It was kind of looking at it a little bit more objectively, you know, as a director as opposed to a writer and just thinking, well, like, the script is already uh, out of my hands in a way because, like, it's it's written. But what I can do is try to, like, find, you know, funny moments or quirky moments or interesting things and try to make those visually, you know, heightened. So a lot of it was just trying to find, like, ways to heighten what was there and, like, look at the flashbacks, trying to find, like, a quirky way to do flashbacks or, like, more interesting way to do flashbacks. And then just really also thinking about, like, stuff outside of what the written word, like, how Taipei could feel. I think sometimes learning like as a director of stuff I don't write is how to basically look at the script and think about how I can make the performances better, how I can make, you know, cool shots, how you can kind of like capture the tone of the script and keep it consistent. Right. And also part of this film is about the Lupo program. A lot of people in the Taiwanese diaspora have definitely heard about it. It's so notable. Had you heard about it in the past? Did that inform at all how you directed the film? I had heard about it. You know, I had a lot of friends and relatives that have been on it. I haven't been on it myself. But I did think about, like, you know, that feeling people would always say that they went back to Taiwan and they partied and, or they hooked up or they had this great time or, like, they learned, you know, so much about their own culture. So all of those things resonated with me. And I knew that, like, that was something to capture that spirit of there's, like, a rebellious nature of these kids that go and they go party. But at the same time, also that the parents send them there to get, like, their cultural roots. So trying to find that balance of what Love Boat is about, but then knowing that, like, you know, this is, like, in a way, kind of like an escapist fantasy movie and how to, like, balance that keep keep like enough of the realism or grounded realism of what the level program is at the same time try to capture the fun of it happens outside of the program which is i think often what the love boat experience is about which is not the program itself the love boat is a nickname given to the cultural and language study tour started by the government in taiwan in the 1960s in the past the program lasted for six weeks in the summer now called the overseas compatriot youth taiwan study tour to taiwan the program only lasts three weeks. And for a lot of people who are not familiar with your work, you yourself actually went to Taiwan um, in your early 20s, nearly 20 years ago. I read in 2001. And actually, I went back at that time, too, and lived there for some time. And I can't help but wonder if you felt there were some parallels between what these characters were experiencing, your own trip going back to Taiwan and connecting with your parents' homeland. I went back to work which is obviously very different than going for like yeah. eight weeks. But I, I can't help, you know, thinking that that's the journey is not that different, which is, you know, I went back as an American who grew up pretty American, especially, you know, like ever. She's from the Midwest, from Ohio, but I grew up in Northern California, pretty white suburb, especially when I was first growing up. And again, like thinking of myself much more as an American as opposed to like a Taiwanese American or Chinese American. So it was really like not just culture shock, but kind of just like, my world was upended a little bit when I first got to Taiwan, just because it was such such a different world than the world I grew up in. But then I, I found so much inspiration and excitement in that experience 
obviously it informed me enough that I wanted to stay there and make movies there and spent most of my younger adult life there. So it had a formative experience on me. So when I read the book and, and the script and thought about, okay, you know, what, what is my connection to Everest journey? It was pretty easy to like you know, think about this is something that I kind of went through, not as a young woman in 2022, but as a younger man in like the early twenties. So I could still see how that would resonate and how it would feel. Yeah. I definitely think a lot of people can connect with this kind of a story. How do you think that Taipei and Taiwan have changed since you started making films in these past couple decades? Like the rest of the world has gotten a lot more globalized, I think. The internet is a big, big reason. But I think just, you know, Taipei has become much, much more accessible in terms of just to the Western world. Um, and I think a lot of it also has to do with, like, you know, the internet, the world where people travel so much more now or like has so much more access to culture. So I feel like people, I know a lot of Chinese Americans or Taiwanese Americans that still go back to Taiwan all the time now, but I think they don't need love food anymore. They could go to the internet, you know, and like find like all the restaurants to eat at or where they should stay, Airbnbs. So I think like in that respect, it's a lot less foreign than it used to be. I'm not in Taipei now, but just being in the Taipei this summer, just like seeing so many Asian Americans there, so many expats. So I feel like it's again, like just become a much more accessible world and, and Taipei has become like a very, very global city. And I think even people who aren't Taiwanese American know about it now, especially like as, uh, when it comes to like food, I think like Taiwanese food has been like softly exported throughout the world, especially obviously like boba. But besides boba, just like Taiwanese food in general, I think people know about night markets and street food and all this stuff. And I feel like that's also just made Taiwan like a more of a travel destination or more of like a party destination than when I was younger and traveling there. What do you think are some of the classic Taiwanese experiences that were really captured in this film and that haven't changed? Oh, like the night markets for sure. I think yeah. night markets it's themselves have not really changed. I think the only thing has changed is that now because of the internet people know like, oh, you have to go to the stand. It's like certain stands are so popular because everyone knows that you, know, you have to go to the night market for this one dish, this night market for this one dish. But the experience of a night market, like, you know, going there and like creating a meal out of essentially snacks, that thing hasn't changed in like 50 or 60 years. It's like it's so rooted in, in like Taiwan. In our movie, I mean, we have the night market experience. And it's also a really easy place to tell a romance because it, in of itself, it is kind of a romantic place, you know, the lighting and the fact that it's at night, it's open all hours. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the, the the big things that people still go to Taipei for that experience. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's just the classic situation that's where a lot of young people go. That's like what they do, you know, when they go out, they go to the night market all the time. Right. Um, probably a lot of dates happen that way. It seems like it was, this is a really lighthearted project. What was the most fun thing about this project? I was getting to work with like these younger um, Asian American kids. Honestly, I, I think just I'm not of that world anymore. Of not definitely not in my early twenties, but just seeing how kids of their age act <laughs> and like how they see the world was really really interesting and fun for me. And just especially like ever hang out with Ashley, who's like you know in her early twenties, seeing like what kids think about now what's cool and what's not cool is really kind of eye-opening to me and then like what's not that different which like nico used to run around set playing music all the time some of the songs are really old and i'm like nico this is this is an awesome song so it's, it's kind of fun just like again like trying to connect with them but at the same time know that they're like of such a different generation than me yeah that's something that i wanted to ask you about i read that music is a part of your writing process usually when you are writing your films and so I'm wondering, how is that different for Love in Taipei? How involved were you with the selection of the music in the film? How was that? In my own movies, I come up with the concept for the score when I'm writing it. So like, I'll know that I want to set the movie to like kind of 50s musical style, you know, score. I want to set it to like French jazz. Again, because I didn't write it, I didn't really have an idea of what the songs would feel like. But 
I knew that we would probably want to do more of a pop score than like a traditional score, or we would use pop songs a lot. So it was kind of cool. It's like the kind of we worked in reverse a little bit, which is that we picked the songs first and then we scored it. And the score kind of became like, you know, a way to like enhance kind of like the pop, pop soundtrack that was already existing. But we had really, really great music supervisors, Laura and Lauren, who were um, amazing. Like, like the data bank of songs they got me and the editor to work with was like just huge. It, it was mostly Taiwanese artists, which was really cool. Um, or Mando pop. So like, I think a good 70% of the music in the movie is Taiwanese pop music or, or some old Taiwanese retro music, which they also found. So it was really cool actually, because, you know, it's a movie about Taiwan and, it's an American movie, but they were cool enough to let me, you know, pick Taiwanese songs and, well, Taiwanese hip hop, Taiwanese pop songs. Uh, we created a cover of a Whitney Houston song in Mandarin. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. I noticed that the Mandarin cover of the song, How Will I Know? How did that come about? I had always thought that, like, uh, that song fit the tone of the movie. So when we tempt the movie with all these different pop songs, like, I knew that this one sequence I wanted to tempt with How Will I Know. Mm-hmm. Well, then, you know, there's no way we could afford the Whitney Houston version. So the editor and I thought, wouldn't it be fun if we could get create like a Mandarin cover of How Will I Know? So the music supervisors found us like a really great artist, Priska, to do the cover. Um, so it was really, really cool. The How Will I Know song is actually quite befitting for the character Ever, who is not only caught in a love triangle, but wondering what path to take in the future as she prepares to go off to college. We'll also share a link to the Spotify playlist for Love in Taipei on our website for this episode. I know that there's a choreographer involved because the character ever, you know, really wants to go to jazz school. What was it like working with this choreographer? Oh, they were great. Um, they helped us choreograph like the fan dance sequence and all this stuff, the dancing on the sky bridge. No, it's, it's really nice because like, you know, I don't know anything about dance. I can't tell. I have no feedback I can give them. It's a very general, broad kind of like, oh, I wish it would feel like this or wish it would feel like this. It relies so much on their taste to uh, be able to choreograph it. And to her credit, Ashley, who can't dance, but is not a dancer, they gave her a lot of lessons and she worked really, really hard to try to catch up on like a ballerina or someone in, in any kind of like modern dance. You need years and years of training. So she had a couple of weeks or a couple of months at the most. And so she had to work really, really hard to get the basics down. And it was, uh, it was hard. And now for a short break. Students interested in cultural exchange can discover a world of opportunity with Bright Future Education, Yuanqing An. Bright Future Education specializes in empowering Taiwanese high school students to embrace international education, shaping them into future global leaders. By experiencing the transformative power of studying abroad, they will return to Taiwan enriched with new perspectives. And for international high school students keen on experiencing Taiwan's captivating culture, we invite you to Taiwan for a -a once-in-a-lifetime academic year. Explore our mission and programs at www.bfe.tw. That's pretty impressive how she pulled that off. Do you usually work with choreographers on your film? Because I know that some of your other films have had dance scenes. Yeah, I usually work with choreographers, although this was by far the more complicated dance movie I've done, just because the main character is a dancer. Was there anything that was unexpected that happened during the filming, something that was not planned that actually ended up in the film? No, I, I think, you know, again, this was a movie that shot during COVID, so it was like, it had to be kind of strictly like, you know, not a lot of improvisation. In other movies, I've like, you know, moved actors around and like thrown them into new locations, you know, like on the on the day or like done more more flexibility with shooting. I think in this movie, because again, it was 
shot very strict COVID protocols. That's flexibility and, you know, like moving stuff around and, yeah. and doing different things. You know, I will say like the thing that was unexpected was just kind of like the character. Again, the actors brought so much charm, their roles that it helped us push the characters a little bit more than like, you know, they were on paper. So I think they were, there was a lot of just their natural charisma that we were able to tap into. It seems like they had a really good camaraderie. Was that also true off the set? Yeah, yeah, though they, they hang out together all the time. And I think like every weekend they were hanging out and like partying together. <laughs> so like, I think they had a really, really nice time. And I, I feel like as we were shooting further along, I think they just got more and more comfortable with each other. And really by the end of the show, it was just like they were really, really those characters because there's these four kids that really did come to Taiwan and like bond with each other. And the most interesting thing is just that we were able to make a movie where the actress journey was so much more like the main characters. I think you've really carved out a space for yourself as someone in the romantic comedy genre. And so um, what is it that appeals to you about that genre? And are you a romantic at heart? When I was younger, definitely, like, you know, I was one of these characters that was kind of also swept up in like the romance of, of type A. And I think a lot of young people are. You know, I, I like romantic comedies just because I, I do like movies with a lot of like a lightness and tone. I do like, you know, the element of love is kind of like something whimsical you can play with, especially like an urban setting. So I love urban romantic comedies. That being said, you know, like I've been trying to veer, maybe veer more and more away from like classical romantic comedies. Love in Taipei <laughs> is an exception because I think it was written to be like a YA rom-com. But for me, I think I'm trying to push sometimes the boundaries of what a rom-com is. You know, my last movie before Love in Taipei, Come On My Boy, it's almost like a dramedy. Like a, not a rom-com, but like a, like a romantic dramedy. So I'm, I'm trying to like find ways to still keep the, the idea of romance in the movie, but then push the boundaries of what a rom-com can be. Arvin's latest film, Mama Boy, is about a 29-year-old man who has a dominating mother and hasn't had any girlfriends or sexual experiences, and he decides to try to lose his virginity in a love hotel. And I was interested in your recent film, Mama Boy, because I read that you and your wife co-wrote it. How was that process like, and how did that come about? I My wife is a director and screenwriter as well. And basically, I, we came up with that story together, and then I was going to write it myself. And I got just so stuck in the process that I had to have, have her come bail me out. So we ended up writing together. Um, it's It's interesting writing with, you know, someone that close to you because you can be very, very honest. There isn't that much like, you know, formality or politeness you have to really adhere to. So it's efficient in a lot of ways because there's there's no buffer. You kind of just like can be very, very brutally honest with each other. So it's a very interesting process. Well, as long as you know how to handle that and you can recover and communicate clearly, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, that's the trick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting. I see that you're really branching out. So having worked in the Taiwanese film industry for nearly 20 years, and then now with this film, Love in Taipei, how would you think that you've seen the film industry in Taiwan change? And how do you think that was reflected in the making of this movie? Um, well, the Taiwanese film industry, from when I started, it was still very, very art house. This is like the early 2000s when I first got back to Taiwan. Um, there was a big shift towards commercial filmmaking in like the late 2000s, so like around 2007, 2008. Um, my first movie came out in 2010 and it was part of kind of that wave of like Taiwanese movies kind of moving back towards more commercial movies. And I think that's been like the, the overall trend of the last 10 years is be- Taiwanese movies now becoming more and more commercial or genre based, like lots more comedies, a lot more like, you know, um, like ghost, ghost <laughs> movies or horror movies or you know, get more genre stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think that's been kind of really interesting, like this, this shift, um, from art house to, to um 
again, like more commercial, more audience friendly stuff in Taiwan. Cause it used to be the art house films in Taiwan were more for international market, like film festivals, like prestigious film festivals. And now it's the trend has been, you know, probably less Taiwanese movies going towards, towards like film festivals, but more local audiences watching Taiwanese movies, which is, which has been great. I guess how it's affected Love Boat, um, cause, or uh, Love in Taipei is that, you know, our crew was 95% Taiwanese. Uh, on the ground, you know, we had a couple, um, you know, our line producer, a couple of producers, like our director, some of the ADs were all from, uh, North America, Canada, or the U.S. But, um, the crew was still Taiwanese. And I think what's great is because Taiwan has now a much more thriving film industry because of the commercial filmmaking. We were able to do ostensibly like a very commercial YA movie with Taiwanese crew. Um, you know, which might not have been possible 10 years ago because Taiwanese crew might not just like language wise, maybe not enough bilingual, um, support and then just technical know-how or, you know, the ways to run a set might have still been a little bit more, a little bit more haphazard, but like now Taiwan has very professional crews. So I think it was very easy to, you know, do this kind of co-production where an American or North American film crew comes into Taiwan when works with the local crew to make an American movie. I mean, it's really interesting to me that you're known for films that are set in town with Taiwanese characters. And I think a lot of your films are kind of probably people's first introduction to Taiwan. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, especially with my own movies, if if it's like the first time someone's seen a Taiwanese movie, I think it's great, especially if it's like a movie about Taipei, because I think it's such a great, unique city. It's a great city. So I always, I would consider like an honor if, you know, someone, the first Taiwanese movie was one of my movies. But then that being said, my, my Taiwanese movies don't look like other Taiwanese movies. So it's not the something I can, I could say like, oh, this is like a nice entry into Taiwanese film. Because I think my movies still outside of Love Boat, they do feel still like kind of hybrid Western and Taiwanese just because of my background. So they aren't, I think, authentically Taiwanese movies, even though they are made for a local audience and they are all shot in Taiwan and all the characters speak Mandarin or Taiwanese. But at the same time, I feel just, you know, by the nature of being kindly still a bit of an outsider, they aren't the most, I think, accurate depiction of, of a Taiwanese movie or the actual, the most accurate example of a Taiwanese movie. They're still a little bit, a little bit different. Right. Since we were talking about like how film can be entree to people, what do you think are some films that really made an introduction to you to Taiwan that you would encourage other people to watch? Um, for sure, I, I would say E by Edward Yang, because that was the movie that basically, um, made me move to Taiwan. I had watched that movie when I just graduated college. So it had such an impact on me, you know, that I, I end up going to Taiwan to work for Edward Yang and to be his assistant. And that's a movie that's, I think recently, I think it was Hollywood Reporter or something, like they had like the top 10 top, or top 100 movies of like the 20th, 21st century. And I think that was number one. You know, it's, it's really just simple. For people who haven't seen it, it's such a simple movie. It's just about like a, a middle-class family over the course of a month. But it touches on so many aspects of everything, like having children, growing older, just yeah. all these things that really, really, is really, really powerful. So that, that's a great one. Um, another favorite I find is the old Amy movie, You Drink Man, Woman. Yeah, a classic movie, but also just, you know, so powerful still, you know, just about a father and his three daughters. So You Drink Man, Woman was also one of the earlier Taiwanese movies I saw, which really had an impact on me. What are some recent or upcoming films that you're really excited about? There's so many films about Taiwan these days that really changed in the last couple of years, the last decades. Yeah, the one I really like recently is that came out maybe two years ago. It's called The Falls. And I think it's on Netflix. But The Falls is really, really good Taiwanese movie. It was shot during COVID and it has 
has kind of like the feeling of COVID in it in a really, really interesting and unique way. But it's about a mother-daughter relationship over the course of COVID. Right. I'm not doing it justice in how I'm pitching it, but it's really, really good. <laughs> yeah, the falls. That's all right. I'll make sure I look it up and put it on my watch list. A lot of people are going to be really curious since, you know, you got your start working with Edward Yang. Of course, I have to ask, what is it that you think that you took away from him that you still use today in your filmmaking? Well, he's he taught me a lot about just like script writing and the process. He Instead of writing the scripts completely like um, in in like word form, sometimes he draws like really complicated sketches, kind of story structure. So that's something I do, like, I think that I got from him for sure, which is like, you know, I sketch out the story. Sometimes not as like a linearly, but like as like almost like a plan for how story is told. So that's, he's helped a lot with with that. But I think just being around him, because he's, um, he's like very, very uh, disciplined creatively, thinks everything out. And not everyone can do that. I can't do it, but like, I aspire to that, which is like, you know, he, he just works out everything in his mind. He has such a clear vision of the movie he's making. I think that's something which is also, I think, really, really difficult for me to do but I still try to do which is like force myself into that creative discipline that he had when he was writing a movie or directing a movie like so concise and so clear about how every frame should look how the actors should block how the lighting should look he had it all in his head perhaps you have a different style how is it that you approach things if you you don't have that kind of approach or that doesn't come natural to you yeah, I think for me, I know that I can't, I don't have it all figured out. And I, so I leave like 50% of, like, I try to have a basic idea of what I want to shoot and some ideas about like, you know, shots that would look interesting. But then the other half of it, I leave open, you know, to kind of see like what, what's, what happens on set. The DP gives me a lot of input as a cinematographer, gives me a lot of input and the actors give me a lot of input or seeing the actors gives me a lot. So it's, it's less about like creating like a fleshed out version of it in my head, more of like thinking about like how it should feel. And then going to the set and like trying to find the other half as we're shooting. Right. Well, I think there's a beauty in that because, you know, things are always changing, moving, and perhaps like you need to have some leeway to be able to adjust to something right. that comes up or like how the actor is or what happens in the scene. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, you know, I think if I, when I do that, I do get so much out of like just watching an actor and seeing like, you know, what they're bringing to it that I didn't think about and then thinking about like how that fits into the, the whole thing. So, it's also, it's like other type of creative discipline, which is like knowing that like you trying to draw the best from, you know, what's happening on set and what like your actors are giving you and what like the day is giving you. So it's trying to find that balance, which is really, really tricky. So what is it about Taiwan or Taipei that continues to make you interested in making films about it? Well, it's just like a really unique city, you know, it's layers of history and culture. It's like modern and not modern at the same time. And um, I'm always still like kind of into like that idea of like a this city that doesn't sleep. Because it's like very, very, Taipei is a very nighttime city where like I think nighttime feels so different than the day and like things really do come alive at night. So I think a lot of it is that that's still compelling to me. The idea like, you know, of the city that, that really comes alive at night and has just so many layers of, of different culture to it. You know, that being said, like I think I don't see it as, rom- as romantically as I did when I was in my twenties anymore. But I think this is just the nature of, of things are like, I think in, in some ways I've probably drawn way too much inspiration from this one city already. So so are you getting ready to move on to some other topics or other locales? Yeah, I mean, I have one more movie that would shoot not entirely in Taipei, but um, apart. But it's it's less, much more movie less that's like not about the city as, as, as much as my other ones have been. Especially my first one, which is like literally a love letter to Taipei. What are you working on these days? Are you working on your next film project or thinking about what's next? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm writing a lot now because I finished a project just a couple, like a month or two ago, which was um, a TV show. I shot a couple episodes of a TV show called Pachinko for Apple TV. I did that most of this year. So I think from January to June, I was shooting that. And I think I should come out on Apple TV, hopefully sometime early next year. Arvin ended the interview by sharing what he hopes audiences will come away with from watching Love in Taipei. I've been asked a few times what I would like the audience to take away from the movie. And I always think now that, um, you know, because I think the audience for this movie skews a little bit on the younger side. Uh, we were talking so much about Taiwan, but, you know, just for me, my parents came from Taiwan in the 70s and I grew up in the U.S., but it was such a formative experience for me to go back to, you know, where my parents grew up and experience that, like a totally different culture. So I just encourage like young people to do the same, you know, especially if they're the children of first generation immigrants to try to, you know, travel back to where your parents came from. Um, could be for like, you know, a couple of weeks, like in the case of ever, or it could be for like, you know, a year abroad. But I think one of the uh, things that's so great about being, you know, the, the son of recent immigrants or the daughter of recent immigrants or the child of recent immigrants is that you're only one generation removed away from, you know, where your parents are from and where they grew up. Especially like the way the world now, it's, it's so much easier to travel post COVID at least, you right. know, to try to like, uh, you know, experience where your parents came from. Cause I think in, in Love in Taipei, it is a very heightened version of that journey or like a very, you know, fun take on that journey. But I do think it's a, it's a pretty cool journey if you can get the chance to do that, you know, to go to where your parents came from, you know, regardless of whether it's Taiwan or somewhere else in the world. Thank you so much. I want to thank you again for sharing all of your insights about how your directing process works and some of the backstory about how Love in Taipei was shot. Yeah, no problem. It's great to be here. I've been speaking to the Taiwanese-American film director, Arvin Chen. You can check out his latest film, Love in Taipei, which is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Now it's time for you to show us some love. We just found out that you can rate us on Spotify. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.